Happy New Year's, everyone, from Mega Man. Be safe out there, guys. Uh, if you guys are partying, dancing, and drinking um, at the clubs, man, just in the bars, just be safe, man. Um, if not, you guys are staying home. Just, just spend, just enjoy with the family. Spend time with your loved ones. Watch uh, Home Alone reruns out. Watch Narcos on Netflix, or just drink some beers, or listen to some podcasts. But uh, be safe out there. I want to pull, uh, pull some plugs in. Curious Entertainment, Bayaso Sunday, January 6th. Funny Latino Comedians. It's a very, very good lineup. You have Benny Mena, Dustin Yarbrough, Sidek Eddie from the General from the Sidek Army, George Perez from the George Perez Stories podcast. What's up, my boy? Martin Moreno. He said, Blaze it, eh? You know what? Rasa. It was pandemonium. Nice. Martin Moreno from the Yo 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 podcast. And don't forget his heavy metal band group, Slaughter. <laughs> and tell the Mega Man set you. No cover. Stores open at 5 p.m., so get there early because they will get packed at the Los, uh, Los Santa MC 220 East 3rd Street in Santa Ana. This Sunday at 5 p.m. in Santa Ana, January 6th. Check it out, guys. In the Central Valley, I'm giving a, I'm showing some support with uh, Chris G from Small Town Kelly Podcast, Straight Out of Fowers, and what's the 411? Guess who will be over there making their, in their invasion of the Fowler, California at Josie's Restaurant? It's going to be on 228 South 8th Street in Fowler, California, guys. Again, 228 South 8th Street in Fowler, California. I think he still has more tickets, so. Anyone who's in the Northern California, Central Valley, on the Barrier, the Wasafu Army, the Sidek Army, the George Perez Army, the Mega Man Army, the Yo 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 Monkey Army, come support George Perez, Sidek 80, and Xavier. They're going to be at Fowler, California at Josie's Restaurant. Check it out. Check them out. And just tell them Mega Man sent you again. <laughs> and uh, I just want to start 2019 right. And I just want to say thank you for all the love and support for everyone who gave me um, on my DMs, on my Instagram, showing support um, on my Mega Man podcast. I really appreciate that, guys. And I was been telling you guys for months and months. Get ready for 2019 because I'm bringing heavy headers and starting the New Year's resolution right, starting the episode 28 right, starting January 1st right. I got a very, very, very special guest, Tony A. The Wizard. I did an interview. Me and my girl did an interview with him. Super nice guy. He knows the hip-hop game. He He's one of the pioneers Oh my gosh, he's, you guys are going to freaking love him. And also, he has a documentary coming out. Um, we saw little clips of it. Me and my girl, we, we fell in love. Like, you got you have a hit, Tony. You have a hit. He's kind of shopping his documentary on. We don't know, maybe Netflix or maybe Hulu's or who knows. YouTube, who knows. But he has a hit. So... I I hope you guys enjoy this episode I did uh, with Tony A. the Wizard, guys. Uh, hope you guys like it. 
and uh, enjoy. Welcome to the Mega Man Podcast with your host, Steven Martinez, a.k.a. Mega Man. This is going to be episode 28. I have a very, very special guest, Tony A., the wizard, a.k.a. the turntable wizard. What's up, man? What's up, brother? How you doing, man? Much respect, bro. Hey, I'm just, I'm glad. I mean, how's your day going so far? So far, so good, man. You know, every day's a blessing. I always like to say, as long as I'm not dead, Joe, in the hospital... It's all good, man. Uh, I'm just like right now. I'm there. I'm glad that I'm doing. A, you're doing my podcast because I mean, this is like an honor uh, hearing your podcast. Well, man, it's a pleasure for me to be a part of your podcast. You know, because uh, it gives me an opportunity. It gives me a platform to be able to share uh, everything that I've gone through, things that I'm doing now, and things that I will be doing in the future, man. So, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Welcome. I heard you on the George Perez uh, podcast with you know Side Dig. Xavier George Perez and also on the let me know pause shout outs to angels and uh, hearing your stories and hearing that I mean it it's just fascinating to me oh yeah well you know what uh, much love and respect to those guys too for having me uh, uh, yeah I did their podcast I did I was on curious radio and uh, had a chance to meet some great guys man and share uh, stuff with them as well that I'm gonna share, about to share with you yeah and I, I also that you know you and I we both live in the we grew up in the Wilmington area. Harbor area, yep. And I always want to give shout outs to the people who who are still living here and still like still representing Wilmington to the fullest. Absolutely. You know, I always believe that uh, uh, you should always represent uh, where you're from because that's pretty much where you started. You know, I've known a lot of people that have come out of Wilmington and have somehow, uh, some way, have made it to the big screen, have made it to the radio, have made it somewhat pretty big and never gave credit to where they came out of. Yeah. You know, so, I, and I'm not that kind of person, you know. I, I always like to say that if, uh, don't ever trust a person that can't go back to his own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, I still, I, my, my grandma and grandpa live right there on Blinn and Wooby Dock Street, right there in the front house. And I see them from time to time and say hi and visit, but I don't forget where I come from. No, no. Yeah, you yeah. should never, man. Um, I was going to take her maybe later on today, take her to Red West Pizza. Dope. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. <laughs> so let's talk about, like, uh, where were you born and everything? Well, uh, my family was born in Mexico. All of them, the, I, I come from uh, one of ten kids. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad and half of my brothers and sisters were born in Mexico. When they came from Mexico, they came to the city of Compton, and I was born here in the city of Torrance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived in Compton until I was about nine years old. I was probably in the, I would just say, first grade and then from there, but I remember as a kid, my father always had a connection with the city, the city of Wilmington. Uh, on the weekends, uh, when he was off of work, he would actually bring our family in a station wagon to uh, Banning Park. Yeah. And uh, we used to go to a restaurant, uh, get food to go and eat it at the park. I mean, I used to have footage of when I was not even one years old mm-hmm. uh, at Banning Park. And uh, I actually include that in a documentary that we'll eventually uh, get to. But uh, yeah, so I've been here now. I'm 50 years old, so let's just say uh, 41 years, somewhere around there. 41 years, still in shape. Boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. You only get one body, and you gotta take care of it. I gotta take care of myself. I gotta go back in shape. <laughs> I gotta do the jogging and yeah. and all that. But now, since I got uh, my leg better, now I have the okay from the doctors because I have three screws in my ankle, so I couldn't do anything. Oh, well, sorry to hear that, man. No, it's all good. So let's talk about like, how'd you start being a DJ? Well, it's 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 a long story, but uh, I'll give it to you. Uh, I like to say the Reader's Digest version. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 11 years old 
when I saw my very first DJ, and this was actually at a swap meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually my very first job, as a matter of fact, also selling records at the same place where this one guy was DJing. And I saw two turntables for the first time, and I always wondered why the guy would need two turntables. Mm-hmm. You know, because when we have a home stereo, we just have one record player. You know, so I saw he had a mixer, he was going back and forth playing songs. I was very, very intrigued by two turntables uh, at 11 years old. So uh, he played a song at the Swami. This Swami consisted of the city uh, Gardena, uh, uh, and the Swami was named the Vermont Swami. The owner of the stand was a guy named Steve Yano. Steve and Susan, they were selling records, and they had a DJ there at the stand. Well, I remember they played a song called Wake a Rap, and uh, I started popping, and uh, I drew a crowd, and so people started asking, uh, what was the name of the song that I was popping to? So I told them, I don't work here. So the Japanese man uh, started telling them, oh, it's this song, it's this song, it's this song. So he sold a couple of records because I was popping. So he asked me, you know, do you want a job? And I said, what do you, what do you need me to do? And he just said, just sell records. You know, can you carry a record crate? I picked it up and he said, okay. So I worked with them for about three years. Mm -hmm. But when I was 12 years old, I was in 12th grade. I mean, I was in sixth grade. I wasn't doing too good in school. And my brother who was DJing at a club in Long Beach, this club consisted of three different names throughout the the years. It was called um, Noah's Ark, Infinity, and Grand Central Station. Though it was the same club, but uh, every other year they changed the name. Mm -hmm. And I would always see him buy records from the same stand that I um, was working at. So every Thursday and Friday he would go. So I would always see him get dressed up. So I remember in sixth grade, I told him that I wanted to go. And he said, look, you're not doing too good in school. If you do good in school uh, and you graduate, I'll take you with me. Now this was the 18 and over club. Mm-hmm. And uh, I graduated and uh, I told him, hey, I want to go. It's Friday and you know, let's do this. And he said, okay, get dressed. And I remember I still had my on my graduation suit. Mm-hmm. I had a three-piece polyester suit from Kmart that my mom had bought me, but I thought I was looking fresh, you know? Yeah. And he said, let's go then. So I was 12 years old in a nightclub. The first time I ever seen a DJ DJ in front of people. And I saw the way my brother controlled the crowd by blending. There was no scratching at that time, but it was just blending. And I can actually say that at that time, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with the rest of my life wow. at 12 years old. So, Who was your biggest influence? When it came to DJing? Yeah. At that time, I would say it was Grandmaster Flash. And I'll tell you why. I was in seventh grade when I was introduced to scratching. Though I hadn't seen it, I heard it. Uh, I had a friend named Nathan, rest in peace, that he brought me a record. And he said, there's a guy out of New York, his name's Grandmaster Flash. He belongs to a group, uh, the Furious Five. And uh, he has a record, and it's called Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel. I didn't know that the Wheels of Steel were turntables. I just thought I was just the name of the record. And um, he let me borrow it. It was a 12-inch. And I took it home, and I heard scratching for the first time, but I didn't know how to put it together in my head. Yeah. How was he doing that? What is that? How come he's taking good times and he's making it sound good, 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 good? How is he doing that? So what I did, I started experimenting at home because I had that good times record. So, but, so it wasn't on TV. So I, I changed the channel one day, maybe that same year, 
and they were showing on the news a DJ scratching. So when I heard the word scratching, I better listen. So I saw him going back and forth on the record, and then he turned around, and he controlled the fader behind his back, and then he came back around. It was almost like, like revolutionary. It was, it was amazing to me. So I would say at that time uh, uh, in my life, uh, as a teenager, it was Grandmaster Flash, and then eventually, maybe three or two years later, uh, Joe Cooley from Badnion, Joe Cooley, Mm-hmm. Joe Cooley became pretty much my mentor and taught me pretty much everything that I know. So, wow. I mean, just just for you talking about it, it's like I get goosebumps like hearing like the history of how it all started. You know? Yeah, yeah. And there was no other way of meeting those people because, again, we didn't have Google. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have social media. Yeah. You just you had to be at the right place at the right time. And honestly, I'm very thankful and grateful of uh, all the opportunities that I was given because when I do share some of these stories, I do have a lot of people that tell me, how did you meet these people? And honestly, it was just the right time and in the right place. Yeah. How did you get started like pushing your stuff out, like, you know, the swap meets and stuff like that? Well, it wasn't until 1985 mm-hmm. that uh, I was supposed to graduate high school, but I dropped out of Banning. Yeah. I just didn't want to go to school no more, honestly. And the reason why I said I had no business being in a nightclub when I was 12 years old is because all I thought about was music. Yeah. After that, all I thought about was music. In high school, I started hearing about the high energy days, the disco days in East LA. So, out here, it was all, you know, rap, funk, but I wanted to hear what those DJs were doing out there, out in East LA. So, I would ditch school with my friend, and uh, we would go to East LA and we would hang out around Roosevelt or Garfield High School because mm-hmm. we heard that's where all the ditching parties were taking place. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went out there and I got introduced to uh, high energy disco and I fell in love with it. So I always DJed uh, all music. Back then, you know, today you just have hip hop DJs. Some I just DJ nothing but oldies, some I just DJ nothing but souls, some nothing but funk. Back then, when you got hired to DJ, you had to play everything that people requested, period. Oh, wow. You know, that's the difference between today's DJs and back then. Back then, DJs, DJs today would not be able to hang with them back then. Mm-hmm. You know, cause, and you had to know music and you had to be a, a crate digger to go out and find the right song, you know, or, and when, know when to play it, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, what time of the night to play it and and have a follow-up after you have the crowd dancing because one song, you can pack up the crowd and with one song, you can kill the crowd. So, uh, but back to how did I start pushing my stuff? In 1985, one of my friends was playing a mixtape. And the first time I heard a mixtape, I was like, what the hell is that? You know, it, it literally sounded like this guy was on like four turntables, literally. And I heard him say, Dr. Dre, the only Dr. Dre that I knew was Dr. Dre from the World Class Wrecking Crew. And he said, Steve at the Rhodium. And the only guy that I know named Steve at the road, was the guy that I used to work for when I was 11, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. I hadn't seen him for almost six years. So I said, who's that? And the guy told me, I bought this tape at the Rhodium Swan Meet. And I was like, what the hell? And um, he goes, yeah, it's called 85 Live. That's what he said. Fly Girls was out and a bunch of other songs were out. So I went, I want to say early 1987, if not late 86. 
And I didn't think he would recognize me because it had already been about six years since we had seen each other. And as soon as I saw him, uh, he recognized me and I recognized him. You know, it's only been six years. I'm a little bit taller now, older. So we start talking and he tells me, um, uh, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm DJing. And he goes, can you go off? You know, that's back then it was like, you know, are you any good? You know? Mm. And I said, yeah. He said, let me see you. And he called me out on it. All right, cool. You know, it's like back then you ask a guy if he can rap, yeah, let me hear you. And he'll bust a freestyle. Today, you know, it's, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I got on the turntables. Now, if I may back up, to my surprise, when I got there to the swamp meet, Dr. Dre was standing right there in his stand. Now, it wasn't Dr. Dre of NWA yet. It was still Dr. Dre leaving the world-class wrecking crew, forming NWA. And there that day, Sir Jinx was there, his cousin, who ended up producing Ice Cube's first, first second album, probably the greatest rap this song ever, No Vaseline. Um, he was about 17 years old when I met him. Mm -hmm. And then I met a guy named Eric, and uh, this was Easy e I didn't know him as Easy e because uh, uh, he was just there as a, a guy putting together a record label, mm -hmm. okay? So he said, hey, man, you know, you're pretty good. He says, and, um, I'm going to give you my nephew's number, get together with him, and you could be his DJ or whatever. And the very first record that I ever did scratching on was in 1987, and it came out in 1988. I don't know what the delay was, but the song's called You Better Think. The rapper was Dazzy D, and the producer was Sir Jinx, and that was under a record label called Thin Line Records. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because Thin Line Records was the record label of VIP Records in Long Beach. This was the very first record ever released by VIP, and I was on it. So I have VIP history. It's still there still. Yeah. It's like a little section now. Yes. They took the VIP section down, but they're trying to save it. Right. Because that's historical. Yes. But you could see it right there. It's a small little building. And mm -hmm. we I saw him maybe like a couple months ago at Pixby Nose back, you know, doing the, 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 the walks, and he was selling his shirts and everything. Right. It was like... VIP is like, you know, Snoop Dogg, Warren right. G, uh, the Dog Pound, like all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like well known. Yeah. I remember be when now it's a 7 Eleven, but before it had a whole bunch of albums, vinyls, mm -hmm. tapes, CDs, posters, everything. And, and that's when I was, uh, when I was going, when I recorded this song for them. I actually had a VIP history before Snoop and before Warren G and those guys. Really? But, yeah, but nobody ever mentions that about me. You know, the very first record ever released by VIP, I was on it. You know, if those guys were there before I was, then maybe he should have done a record with them. Think about it. Cause was there like a studio in there? Yeah, a studio in the back. Little right. studio in the back. As a matter of fact, that's when I first met DJ Quick wow. back there too. I didn't know it was him, but I remember meeting him and he told me he was a DJ. He wasn't a producer. He was a DJ. And uh, there was a guy named DJ Slice, and Jinx was back there, and Quick was back there. And I remember when I talked to Calvin Anderson soon after that, uh, uh, actually when I interviewed him for my documentary, he told me that that day Quick went up to him and said, you know what, I'm going to sell everything I have, I need to buy a drum machine. And from that point on, he started producing. Quick was still in high school and he started producing. But we were all in that back room uh, that one day. What about DLC? No, the DLC actually came from Texas. He actually came out here, I want to say, late 87. And uh, I actually uh, met him at the studio and uh, talked to him a couple of times backstage. You know, I'm one of the few people that is still alive that can say he was 
I was backstage with the NWA when their albums first dropped when they were doing shows. And me being Mexican, not too many Mexicans can say that. No. Okay? So, yeah, I was backstage. That's when I first met Jeremy Heller, Cube. I've had Dre. I've had Easy i I've had uh, uh, Ice Cube. I had all those guys come to my house before and rap on my mixtapes. Who else can say that? Mm. You know, nobody. No. So, and have proof. You can back it up with your pictures and everything. I, I can back it up with my pictures, and I can back it up with my mixtapes when they say my name. Yeah. So. It's... So I got started in 1987 doing mixtapes for Steve at the uh -huh. Rodium Swami yeah. and uh, uh, actually recording on vinyl records for uh, VIP. I'm just, I'm, I'm shocked, but it's, it's, I love hearing the history of all this stuff. And back then, like now we're living in a social media world where you're pushing everything out. Back then, you were grinding. You were doing it the word of mouth going to swap me's going pushing yourself at towers records or warehouse and like all that stuff how was that was this like in the truck selling your stuff word about see you know it's funny because people call it grinding today mm -hmm. and back then it was just we were doing what we love you know we were just doing what we love we knew that that had to get done we didn't see it as a job we saw it as the, this is what we love you know what i'm saying it's like if you were to drive an hour or two to go see your girlfriend, you wouldn't call it, I was, I'm grinding over there. You would just say, I'm going because I love her, because I want to see her, you know? And I did all of this because, you know what, I loved it. It, it, it was, you needed to do it. That's it. So today people may call it grinding, and uh, they turn it into a job, more into, uh, they're doing it because they love it. And I think that's where music has uh, taken a turn People are no longer doing it because they love it. It's all because of the money. Keep in mind, I released a mixtape and got a record deal, and I wasn't even looking for one. I have always believed that if you release good quality stuff, money will come knocking at your door. Money will come knocking at your door. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I uh, Days away from finishing up this documentary, Okay, mm -hmm. I released a couple of trailers, and I won't mention no names, but I already had Netflix approach me that they want it. So they want to set up a meeting as soon as it's done. Okay? Now, think about it. I didn't go look and knock it on Netflix door. I didn't do that. But if you release good quality stuff, money will come knocking at you. Do not chase money. Uh, let it come to you. Let it come to you. I, I will never, ever chase money. Because let me tell you something. You may never, ever get it. And then you, before you know it, you will be close to 60 years old. Still talking about, well, Sony's looking at us and Columbia's interested and mm -hmm. being a 50, 60-year-old rapper. I'm sorry. You know. So so I, I've evolved since then from DJing to producing to directing now. That's, that's awesome. You know, like, when I tell my girl and she asks me, like, you know, hey, why are you always on your social media, on your podcast? Because I'm pushing it out and you never know who's going to look at it. Yeah. You never know who's going to hear it. You never, never know. Right. So... I, I get it. Right. I, I totally get it. Right. But that's awesome. With if Hopefully, cross your fingers, you go with Netflix. Cause, mm -hmm. That's you know, worldwide. Cause I, yeah, worldwide. But also, they show a lot of good documentaries. Yeah. And I love it. So, <laughs> understanding your documentary, understanding the story, how it was, it's like, I can tell that's going to be five stars right there. I can just already tell off the bat. Because you're going to make it how, in your eyes, how it's going to be like. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I love it, man. I love it. Dope, dope. Uh, we, I want to talk about this. I know we talked about it um, before we did the podcast. 
the golden age of rap in the, in the West Coast in the 80s and 90s. You want to talk about that and, and see? Maybe you have a different point of view? Well, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit more on your question so that your listeners would understand exactly what is it that you're asking before I answer it. Well, like, what is it that you're looking for? Looking at how the golden age of the 80s and 90s was very lyrical. Yes. You know, people were battling, you know, trying to, you know, like to still like, you know, have make you know have that name recognition. You know, right. it's like now these days, it, it's different. Right. You know, right. they don't they don't battle each other. Not lyrical. Everything's just like it's easy for them. But you know. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, let me share this. Um, a lot of people may not call this rap, but it was a rap song. The very first rap song that I ever ever heard was from a white woman named Blondie, in a song called Rapture. Uh, uh, she rapped, she did a, like a 16-bar rap on there. And a lot of people say, well, that's not rap, but it, it, I'm sorry, she had a Fab, Fab Five Freddy in the video, okay? Hmm, okay. And soon after that, I heard uh, Sugar Hill Gang. Yes. You know, and people were calling them, if you will, today they will call Sugar Hill Gang like the MC Hammer of hip-hop. Because hmm. a lot of people that were out, if you will, grinding, working, hustling, rapping, heard that song come out and it blew up, they were disappointed because they were saying, we don't want that song to be recognized as hip-hop when we're hip-hop. They almost saw that as that was radio-friendly, if you will. But that opened doors to hip-hop in general. So we'll go from there. So we got uh, uh, Sugar Hill Gang, and then eventually we had Run DMC, and then eventually we had the Fat Boys. And then we've had Houdini, and then we've had uh, Salt and Pepper. So I'm not naming them in order, but pretty much mm-hmm. kind of just like grouping them all together. Then eventually we started getting into like dope raps, like you know, I'm not saying that they, those weren't dope, but like KRS-One. Yes. Then we had a uh, public public enemy, and then we had Tri Called Quest, and eventually, uh, uh, if you will, uh, Wu Tang. You know what I'm saying? I mean, East was coming strong. Here in the West Coast, here we had a Rhyme Syndicate. We had a lot of people. I mean, I know we had Toddy T, Mix Master Spade, King T, all produced by DJ Pool. King T. You know. And then eventually we had the world-class wrecking crew, which evolved into NWA. And then from there, that broke up. And the Cube had his groups. The West had connection. And then Dre comes with, you know, 50 Cent, Eminem, Warren G, the whole... And then eventually evolved to Death Row. So both coasts were blossoming at those times, which you would call the golden era. Mm-hmm. Today... My argument is this, that all of those people made a name and sold units and toured the world because they have talent. Because they have talent. Mm-hmm. About the only time that I ever disagreed with those people that have talent was when MC Hammer came out. Because when MC Hammer came out, I heard him in an interview that he said, I don't consider myself a rapper, I consider myself an artist. That's what he said. So if he didn't consider himself a rapper, I never would have guessed that he would ever try to battle someone. So I respected, if you will, his hustle because he didn't consider himself a rapper, mm-hmm. okay? Um, he had Taco Bell commercials, he had Pepsi commercials, he had clothing line commercials. And I remember from both coasts, all rappers were mocking him, saying he was a sellout. sellout. The sad thing is that eventually even the Source magazine that comes out of New York started selling advertisement to Carl Kanai, to Cross Colors, to Buffalinos, and all these other clothing lines. And now you see rappers now modeling. You know, I don't want to say that lyrics got weak, but I think the culture, in a sense, started opening up more that there's more money to be made outside of rap. But the pioneer of that was actually MC Hammer, the guy that they were actually calling sellout. 
Now these guys are doing movies, they're doing commercials, they're doing all of these things. Surprise commercials. Yes, but MC Hammer opened there. So I always respected Hammer for that. That was about the only time that I can actually say that rap possibly in the eyes of the public kind of went weak. But you know what? People would mock Hammer, but somebody bought them $25 million, you know, 25 million records. Somebody bought them, okay? Um, so that was about the only time that I can actually say that music in that golden era possibly got soft a little bit, okay? But still sold units. Mm -hmm. Today, I just think they're all soft. I don't think it requires talent anymore. Uh, it's uh, how many followers do you have? Do you have a name for yourself? How many likes do you get? Do people know you? And it's all about the bling, you know. Uh, uh, I, I was told by this one guy in the East Coast that he, he had an interview with a major label and um, that he was asking them, what is it that you're looking for in an artist today? And he said, and in short, this is pretty much what this A&R person said. By the way, an A&R person is somebody who actually has the power to sign somebody. And he said, uh, if she got ass, we're good. And she has ass, okay? And he said, what about talent? And he goes, she doesn't even have to know how to sing. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, we got autotone. He goes, what if she's ugly? He said, uh, Botox, we can always buy her a face. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. He said, uh, what if she got no boobs? Uh, we'll buy her some tits. Like, all of these things, it did, it, talent didn't even matter. Talent didn't even matter. And uh, it's become a business where... It's almost like the weirder you are, the more the more likely you are to destroy yourself on on uh, social media, the more fans you have. That's what's happened with Takashi Six Nine. Yeah, and all these other guys popping pills, tattooing their damn face, weird hairstyles, uh, recording them, themselves doing dumb shit, and uh, the white and the Asian kids are eating it up. And the parents are saying nothing, and you know. Did you see that rapper who was doing live and he got shot up two times? Was it? I don't know which rapper. It was live. I was like. No, the there was a guy that shot himself. He's not a rapper, but he's he's a social media, if you will, star or sensation or whatever you want to call his ass. Mm -hmm. He actually shot himself, and then he went live and said he had just gotten jacked, but he's still alive. Later on, they found out that he had edited that video, and when they went through his phone, they, they actually saw him shoot himself, just just for attention. But that's where we're at today, and it's 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 fucking pathetic that skills and uh, has nothing to do anymore with this kind of music. I can go to a club in the East Coast, they'll play the same shit. I go go to a club in the West Coast, they play the same shit. I before I went to New York, I was in Arizona. I went to a club in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the music there was fucking pathetic. It, it truly, truly was pathetic. So I'm sitting there in, in Scottsdale, Arizona, listening to this, listening to uh, uh, Travis Scott, and then they play Kanye West, and then they play Little Pump, and then they play Tyga, okay? And in the midst of all of that, the girls are going crazy, okay? And in the midst of all that, the DJ actually switched it up a little bit. He played some Tupac, uh, uh, How Do You Want It? And then eventually he played... Uh, California Love, Dr. Yeah. A and Tupac. Mm -hmm. And then eventually he went on to uh, some E-40 music. Mm -hmm. And the crowd in the club still stayed on the floor and they were still jamming, okay? Here's my point in sharing that. I turned around and I looked at DJ Quick. The reason why I asked him this question is because, because that All Eyes On Me album, he engineered that whole project and he mixed it down. Really? So I know I know that he, he, he did work with that. 
on that record. So I turned around and I asked them, I said, isn't it funny that they were playing all that other bullshit mumble rap, but as soon as they changed the music, the crowd didn't leave. The crowd still stayed there and are still jamming. That tells me that there is still a market, that this music is still alive and thriving, but somebody upstairs, if you will, and I'm talking about in the corporate uh, world, changed the fucking music on us on purpose. And I almost think that it's even an agenda just to fuck the next generation up, if you ask me. Because they were still dancing to all that other good music, mm-hmm. you know. But somehow they had brainwashed this industry that you have to go this route instead of that route. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry. There was more talent back then than there is now. I think there's. I think what what happened was I feel like with this whole mumble, this trap music rap, I think it's it's coming from Little Wayne and Future. So mm-hmm. you know, I heard a, I saw a video with Snoop Dogg saying, you know, the I'm not hearing that shit. Like he, right. he's, he knows. Right. You know, the the sad thing is that if if you're a youngster and whoever may be listening to this, if you're a youngster, and when I say youngster, maybe you're a teenager, or early twenties, mm-hmm. and you're disagreeing with everything I'm saying, all I ask you to do is do your own research, go back and study. Uh, the, the beginnings of early hip hop. Don't just look at us as you guys are a bunch of old school haters. Go back and see how it has evolved, but it, it all took talent. And when it got to you guys, this generation, it took a nosedive. But if this is all you've heard coming up as a kid, of course you're going to recognize it as hip hop because you don't know anything else. I'm not going to show my son, if you will, the New Testament without showing him the Old Testament first. Mm. So there it is there. Do your own homework. Don't believe me. Uh, 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 do your own research. And if you find out that I lied to you, then you don't ever got to listen to me again. I know, man. I get it. These days, they, they don't play that much hip-hop music. Back then, I was watching The Box. Rap City. Yo Rap. is just, just video soul. It used to come on BET. Like, everything. I was just hearing whatever I can. But The Box was playing a lot of your guys' music. You know? Yeah, I was on The, the Box. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I used to got a chocolate hit in the back of the head from my mama. <laughs> so, okay, but hey, it's good stuff I'm talking, good stuff. I like hearing it. Um, how'd you, uh, how'd you, uh, know, uh, get, you know, get to know uh, High C? How'd you, know, how'd, how'd you guys met up? Well, um, I was doing mixtapes, like I said, 87, uh, with, uh, I was cutting and scratching on these mixtapes, cutting up all the latest songs for this guy named Steve Viano at the Rodeo Swami. Uh-huh. And I had the honor and the pleasure to have like Dre, Cube, and Easy, and Ren, like the whole NWA crew. Mm-hmm. Even Michelle A even uh, did a little couple of intros, and even uh, guys like Crazy D, uh, Jinx, uh, JJ Fad, they all rapped on these mixtapes, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, you know, people ask me, how was it working with those guys or doing these mixtapes? Yeah. Understand that they didn't blow up yet. You know, so it wasn't like I was nervous that they came over my house mm-hmm. because I didn't know the magnitude of, of how their their record or their career was going to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't. And it wasn't until years later that, like, damn, those bastards blew up, you know. So I said that to say this, that when it was late 87, because in 88, uh, NWA album came out, and about two months later, the Easy E album came out, okay. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they all they all went multi platinum. But Dre tells me that that they weren't going to be able to rap on the mixtape anymore. They were about to go on tour, so we had to find another rapper to rap on those mixtapes. Somebody that could rap. Yeah. 
Well, Steve tells me there's a guy sitting at the back of the Swamp Meet, and his name is High C. He said he's a blood from Compton. That's what he tells me. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go back there and meet him. Now, he was only maybe about 17 years old. He was in 12th grade and going to Centennial High School in Compton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went over there and met him. I thought he was cool. I, uh, uh, I said I invited him to my house. I gave him my address. Came to my house in Wilmington. Came in his uh, El Camino. And uh, he came in and he rapped, uh, uh, you know, for me. And uh, I remember the name of his first rap was I'm Hard. And I didn't think it was that hard, to be honest with you. I thought it was very elementary, but you know what? I liked his voice, and he had a little style about him, what I liked. I didn't think he was the best lyricist. So I always tell people, because people would tell me, oh, I thought High C was rap whack. I didn't think he was a dope rapper. I went on what Dre told me many years ago. He said, it's not what they're saying, but it's how they're saying it. And he gave me the example of Too Short. He goes, he ain't the best lyricist in the world. He said, but it's just his style. It's how he's saying it. He said that people like. So I went on that. So High C rapped on a couple of my mixtapes, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much how we met, was through the Swamp Meet and the whole mixtape thing. Now keep in mind, I was doing mixtapes before I ever met him. Yeah. He got a record deal because of my mixtapes. Uh -huh. And that's how the history of High C started. So. The first album, man, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm not your puppet, I'm just, I bump it. I bump it, my son loves it. What was the first video you guys you guys put out for that for that album? The very first video that we put out was uh, "I'm Not Your Puppet," and we wanted to record it at the Rodium Swamp Meet because uh -huh. that's where it all started for us. Uh -huh. And um, a guy named Ian Fletcher did it. Is the black and white video, and I didn't think it was that good. I was never really really happy with it. Yeah. Uh, but that was the first video. Uh, our second video was to our follow up single. Uh, we did a. Uh, uh, Leave My Crows Alone, which was directed by the Hughes Brothers. Uh, much love to Albert and Allen for doing that for us. And then we did uh, Sitting in the Park. And then we were supposed to do a video for uh, Froggy Style. For Froggy Style. But uh, due to complications between me and High C at the time, we never got around to do it. Wow. So, wow. so, yeah, just keep in mind that money changes everything and everybody. Mm -hmm. Once the money comes in, people change. Mm -hmm. So... That's awesome. Do you ever listen to like a like I I used to, I used to live in Long Beach, Wilmington, and moved around when my mom and my dad got divorced. I moved with my mom to Northern California. Do you ever listen to the Bay Area rap or anything like that? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you when I got introduced to the Bay Area rap, and I want to say I think it was shoot maybe eighty seven when Too Short came out with uh, Born to Mac. Born to Mac. Yeah, the album with Freaky Tales. Yeah. Okay. Um, Here's how I, to me, that is Bay Area rap, because that's when I heard it. I heard it. I didn't hear it be legit. I didn't hear E-40. I didn't hear Spice One back then. Spice oh, One's from Modesto. Okay. All I heard was uh, um, Too Short, Born the Mac. And I remember Dre uh, was doing a mixtape. There was a couple of times where he didn't finish the mixtapes, and he asked me, finish this one up for me. Oh, wow. You know, so we did like one or two where we kind of collaborated. And uh, he said, I'm going to do side A, and I want you to do side B. I said, okay. So I remember on this mixtape, he gets on the mic, and he says, yo, what's up? Big shout out to my boy Too Short from the Bay Area. For those of you that don't know who Too Short is, and he said something of that nature, check out this, and he played Freaky Tales. And so that was the very first time that I ever heard the Bay Area music was while he was doing a mixtape, and he told me, 
watch out for this guy. This guy's going to blow up. And that's when he told me, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. He goes, he just got that little style about him. You know, of course, he, bitch, you know, he did that. And uh, I, I wasn't really feeling it too much, but but before you know it, man, if you had 15-inch woofers in your car, you could hear that fucking bass bumping, bro. That thing bumps out in the barrier, like NorCal. I don't want to say, sorry for that, NorCal, Central Valley. They bump all that, like yeah. like Mac Dre, Sebo, you know, uh, X-rated, Brother Lynch, right. you know, now, all that. I would say after that, I liked E-40. Uh, I didn't like E-40 when I kept hearing him on the radio. Uh-huh. I just didn't really care too much for his shit, you know? But let me say this. We did a show. I was DJing for Quick, Second to None, uh, AMG, High C. Uh-huh. E-40 went on right before us. This is early 90s. And I said, you know what, let me go listen to him. I walked out of my dressing room and I walked behind, uh, right on the side of the stage and I saw him perform. And he, he won me over, man. I, I thought he put on a great-ass show. I knew the songs. Not that I liked them, but I knew something on the radio. But when I saw him perform it, and I saw the way he engaged the crowd and everything, he really won me over, man. So That's awesome. Yeah. Man. That's awesome. So uh, with now, I mean, do you still, you, are you still in, in the hip-hop game still? Are you still? Well... Or you have other event, other uh, stuff you're doing on the side. Well, you know, it's funny because people always, they want to book me to DJ. Uh-huh. And I've been turning them down. And even though they're paid gigs, I've been turning them down because my number one love right now, if you will, something that I'm putting my 80 or 90% into is this documentary that I'm working. So I can still DJ and I can still produce. But there's long there's longevity in filming right now and directing. So that's mm-hmm. where I'm pretty much taking my uh uh if you will my career the rest for the rest of my life yeah so if i ever do like a movie or another documentary i'll do my own music you know uh um but uh, yeah i i could still produce and i could still dj but i just choose not to right now mm-hmm. because um to me to create visuals is far better than to me djing and producing right now you know, mm-hmm. because music to me has always been three-dimensional. Three-dimensional. Think about this. You you hear it, you feel it, and now you can see it through visuals. Dang. So uh, I want to create the part where you where you see it. Dropping so, knowledge. So, yeah, man. So That's awesome. So uh, what um, documentaries do you have lined up? Well, right now I have one uh, called the Rhodium Mixtape Documentary, and it's based on an era of 84 to 91. And it's based on these mixtapes that you could only get. They were exclusive Steviano Rhodium mixtapes that you could only get at the Swamp Meet in the city of Gardena called the Rhodium Swamp Meet. And this is pretty much the story about a Japanese man who was a vendor. That's all he was, just a vendor. Mm-hmm. But the people that came through that stand, you know, first of all, you got the only billionaire in hip-hop, which is Dr. Dre, that came up out of the Rhodium Swamp Meet doing mixtapes for him. Mm-hmm. And this is before the N.W.A., now, somebody may say, well, what makes this documentary so unique? Well, first of all, a lot of the raps that those these guys rapped on these mixtapes, they later on re- reused and used them on their records. So they were actually rapped first on those mixtapes, okay? Mm-hmm. And every rapper that rapped on those mixtapes, let me just name them, Dre, Cube, Easy e MC Ren, uh, uh, Sir Jinx, you got High c you got uh, Second to None, AMG, DJ Quick, just to name a few, every single one of those artists, when their records came out, eventually went gold or platinum. Every single one of them. K 
Can't nobody else right now say that, that they have done mixtapes with these guys, still have them, still have proof, and that every one of those rappers went gold or platinum when their records came out. Now, people can say, well, I've done mixtapes. We've all done mixtapes. You know, we can say that. But you can't say you've had Dr. Dre and Cube and Easy all at your house doing them. You can't say that you had uh, uh, Qu Quick, uh, you know, uh, A&G, Second to None, and uh, High C all at your house, you know, doing them before, before the records ever even came out. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't say that. So that's what makes these tapes uh, very, very unique because they were only sold at one place, and mm -hmm. that was at the Rodeo Swan Meet. So uh, that's my first documentary. So, so that's going to be uh, coming out soon. Uh, we're literally days away from uh, finishing it. And after that, uh, I have another one called uh, What is Chicano Rap? And we're going to shed light on our people. And uh, why is it that our people are our, I mean, I believe that we are some of the most talented people here on earth. And yet, instead, we're never really accepted into this black industry that is pretty much black owned. But us being Latinos who are the number one consumers of hip hop, funk and oldies, uh, uh, we don't get that same love or that same respect back. Uh, so I want to shed a little bit of light on why hasn't none of us ever taken off like an Easy E, like a game, like a Quick, or like a Dre, mm -hmm. you know. So I want to shed a little bit of light on that, you know. It's rare for you to find a Latino, a Mexican with a major record deal. Mm -hmm. you, you don't you don't find that. And you, you kind of wonder why, you know, why. Uh, is it our own fault? You know, I, I've had conversations with people that have said it's our own fault. Other people have said, nobody wants to listen to you guys, but yet they will accept our money. We pack in the clubs, we pack in the concerts, we buy the records, but yet when we want to come out with something, we're not supported. So I'm going to shed a light on both of those sides. Then I have another one lined up called 76 in Crenshaw, which I'm not going to touch on yet because that one's going to be a big surprise. And then eventually I want to get started on a horror movie. I want to do a scary movie. I want to do a scary movie in the hood. That's what I want to do. And I won't elaborate on that because, believe me, there are people out there right now that have been paying close attention to what I'm doing and have been biting my shit, man. Like, I'm serious to the point to the way I edit, the way I do transitions, uh, uh, titles of stuff. When, when we were filming this documentary, the manager of the Rhodium, Swamp Meat, came up to us and said, hey, man, you know what? You guys are going to have to slow down on coming over here. And I said, what do you mean? We haven't been here in about a month. And he said, well, somebody else is doing a documentary on the rhodium. And this was earlier this year. I did my homework. I found out who this guy was, and I hit him up. This guy has no association with the rhodium. No association. But he heard me on a podcast, and he saw one of my trailers, and he thought that was a good idea. So he was trying to contact the same people that I contacted so that he can do his own. Oh, wow. So I'm very careful now with the information that I share because I'm sorry to say you got motherfuckers out there that uh, have no creativity, no originality, and they'll wait for somebody to drop a nugget, some type of uh, idea, so they could take that shit from you. So It's like leeches and vampires. Th that, that's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. So, I mean, I, I've had, I showed people songs that I've done that I never showed to anybody else. A couple of months later... I would hear their song on YouTube or on Instagram, and I'm like, dude, that was my fucking song. You like re just replayed it. Mm -hmm. And he got so nervous that here's what he said. Well, just because you had a good idea doesn't mean that nobody else can use it. Mm -hmm. That's what he told me. So he literally took my shit, just replayed it over, mm -hmm. 
and said, well, you showed it to me, so you shouldn't have showed it to me. Yeah. So. That's crazy. That's, I know. It's just, it's, 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 it's yeah, it, it's a fucking cutthroat business, and, and honestly, it's, it's, that's why uh, my biggest regret on doing this documentary is this, that I probably should not have released a trailer yet. But it's kind of like, uh, damn if you do, damn if you don't, because if I didn't, then I would have never had Netflix knocking at my door. That's so right. it's it's, it's would, a give or take. Would you ever do like a premiere at a theater or anything? No, like the, I am doing, I already have the theater lined up. It's going to be in Long Beach. Oh, and, really? Yeah, and I actually even have a... Uh, uh, is it going to be maybe, at the only indie theater is probably the art theater. That's it. Uh, 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 the, the one in We're Long there. Beach. We're there. We're there. Yeah. We're, yeah. I live like a block, I live on 10th and Cherry. So I'm like right there. Yeah. She would yeah, be there to support. We'll be there to support. Oh. And I'm also having a, and a um, uh, release party. Oh, we're there. So yeah, I'll call and work. I already got the hall for for that and everything. So I'm, I've, I'm in, like I can't. That's that's the perfect place. I, I go to the theater. You know, it's perfect. Everything, beer, wine. You have everything on Fourth Street. It's all nothing but like everything. It's all ventures of hipsters, hip hoppers, metals, indie. Every, you got everything. We live yeah. close by there. We live close by good, there. Good, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do whatever we can to push it out. And, That'll work, You huh? know, and everything to Long Beach, uh, Long Beach Post, and to everything, to, you know, to, to Long Beach people and stuff. That'll work. I, I, anything. Well, this, I have to say this. Um, hearing your stuff is just, it's refreshing. You know, it's just, uh, I wanted to bring you on my podcast because your stories are unique and genuine. And... I don't want people to forget about people, yeah. like special people like you. And, and, and that's why I'm also doing this documentary because I wanted to pay homage to this guy, Steve. Uh, uh, I, I don't want his name to get lost in West Coast hip-hop history because I do believe that, you know, one guy said something smart to me one time. Uh, we were doing a radio station, and I kept talking about the Rhodium, West Coast hip-hop, and then he said, so what do you think, man? You think hip-hop started at the Rhodium? And I said, first of all, I don't mind you quoting me. We just don't go around misquoting me. Okay, mm -hmm. I never said that it started there at the rodeo, but what I am saying is that it is a cornerstone to West Coast hip hop. That's all I'm saying. Just like VIP Records was, yeah. just like other other places were. Yeah. I said uh, Radiotron was. I said, but uh, I just I'm just saying that it it is a cornerstone to West Coast hip hop. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, when people say something smart, believe me, bro, I'm not one to hold back. <laughs> you don't hold back. So, you you got you have to be honest. People, we have yeah. to be honest these days. You have to be oh, really absolutely, even if it offends them, you know. Yeah. Honestly, uh, I'm, I don't try to be rude, but the truth offends people, you know. We're living in a very sensitive world now. Well, yeah, everybody wants us to walk on eggshells, and I'm not doing that shit, you know. Yeah. I, I'm just going to be honest. You can love it or you can hate it, and so far I've had more people that love it, so. Yeah. Uh, I, I follow you on Instagram, and I have to say in your social media, it's hilarious. You put the funniest stories. It's like... I have to say, I'll be honest, I screenshot your stuff, like, that's funny. Like, we just make it just for the fuck of it? <laughs> well, you know, the, here's the thing about my dad, rest in peace. My dad passed away about two months ago. Yeah, and, um, sorry about that. When I was a kid, thank you. When I was a kid, my dad had a projector. Yeah. And uh, the old school projector, the kind, you kind of like reel to reel, if you will. Yeah, and yeah. he used to rent movies um, uh, from the library. Yeah. And a lot of times he in our garage, you know, him having ten kids, he would uh, put up a, a bed sheet on the garage door, mm -hmm. and uh, he would um, set up the projector so it could look like a movie theater. Mm -hmm. He would go inside and make us popcorn and tell all the kids to lay down on the sheet, 
and we would all bring our blankets and lay down on the driveway and watch a movie. It was always black and white movies like Laura and Hardy and uh, Albert and Costello, a lot of comedy. It was always comedy. So my dad was teaching me without ever really sitting me down and spending quality time because you can't spend quality time with one kid when you have 10, mm-hmm. okay? So he was, I would watch him the way he would put the, the real one and everything, and he was literally teaching me film. Mm-hmm. And he was teaching me about comedy as well. And he would always play a lot, saw a lot of black and white horror movies, like, like whether it be Boris Karloff playing Frankenstein or would it be uh, Bela Lugosi playing uh, uh, Dracula or whatever. Yeah. So he was teaching me a lot of these things growing up, you know, without, like I said, without literally trying to school me. So I would see that. And then he taught me a lot about music. He would never say, mijo, look, this is music. But I would see the type of music that he would listen to. He was a vinyl collector. He had his own stereo. He had his own projector. And he had his own camera. I mean, this guy had a camera when I was one years old. He filmed me at Banny Park. And I have footage. You know, I still have that footage. And uh, so I, I remember he actually even did his own sign. He put a, a Alvarez production, you know, with like watercolors. Yeah, and, he, yeah. and he filmed that uh-huh. before he started filming us. It was almost like he was doing his own movie. And I feel that all of those gifts and all those talents were in me. But watching him uh, do these things was bringing it out of me. Yeah. And now that I'm older, uh, uh, I think all of those gifts and talents are flourishing now. So I get to uh, share them with everyone, everything that he taught me and shared with me. So now when you say I post up funny stuff, to me, I've always been a joker. I remember I was in third grade. I was in third grade, and I would always have everybody busting up. <laughs> and the teacher one day told me, she was a Korean lady. She goes, you know what? Maybe you ought to look into being a comedian, you know? And I never thought about that. But I will say this, that uh, I never considered myself to be like a really good-looking dude. But if I knew if I can keep the girls laughing, I had them. We like that. See? I got a sense of humor. and sen- I have my moments, but sense of humor. If I can make her laugh, I got her. It's yeah. all sense of humor. Yeah. You just have to be yourself. Yeah, so so that, that's what happens. Man. I post a lot of funny stuff that I think is funny, you know. Yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Well, we're going to take a break right now, but we'll be back on, guys. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back on, guys. So we want to end something. I always want to know, like, um, how do you see the generation now of, of, of music now with rap? Well, I don't fit in into this generation of rap. Um, I don't consider it rap, and it's sad to say, a lot of people may uh, call me a hater or somebody that, uh, you know, is not, if you will, lenient on today's music because, because I don't consider it music. Um, consider it noise. I think that the art is gone. I think that people are um, so sensitive today that they can't speak the truth, even in music. Uh, so it's all about uh, shaking your ass, uh, tattoos on your face, popping pills, weird hairstyle, and how you're destroying yourself and for, and so on social media, and that's how you get fans. It's all about followers, it's all about likes, uh, it's all about how popular you are. But you know what? As fast as you came in, as fast as you're going to go out. So if you're one of those rappers that are trying to fit in with this generation, you know what I'm doing? I'm seeing this generation, this this type of music like a parade. I'm just standing on the sidelines and letting this parade pass by. And even if they wave at me, I wouldn't wave back. So just keep going. Let this shit get over with. And so that way the real talent could come in. So I'm still hoping uh, 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 for this thing to hurry up and speed through. 
because meanwhile you got idiots like the amigos and you got guys like little pump and these guys that are overdosing and dying and going to jail hurry up and do all you got to do you know get your money and get on because obviously it isn't talent that's keeping you guys in it's likes and follows and whoever is uh, allowing you guys to stick around this long because i still don't understand who let you guys in who allowed you guys to change music but uh if you guys want to continue to do what you guys are doing, go for it. But believe me, I don't fit in. The sad thing is with this generation that these are the only examples that they have. Mm -hmm. You know, you got kids today that they must have tattoos. They must have ear piercings. Uh, they got to get high. You know, marijuana is like pretty much standard with rap, you know, which is pretty sad. You got to get fucked up, you know, drink your Hennessy. You got to have the latest skinny jeans and you got to have... The latest this, the latest that, when back then all we had was some Nike Cortez, some Ben Davis, a white t-shirt, and some records. That's all. You said it right there. I mean, look at, um, I don't know what's going on with the, the millennials think like with all this new stuff, but I'm more old school. I keep it 100 and stuff. And You, you know, know, and we wouldn't be even be having this conversation if this music would have never got off the ground. You know, but somebody changed this, somebody have allowed it, and this is where we're at, and this is the saddest that music has ever been. Now, somebody may say, well, you know, I'm sure your parents said the same thing when you were listening to your rap, okay? The only thing that I can actually say that our parents would have said back then was that they didn't like the cursing. That was it. Yeah. But all the rappers that we listened to growing up were talented, were talented. They might have just said the F word one too many times that our Mexican mothers got upset and said, turn that shit off. Yeah. Okay. But they were talented today. I don't think these guys are talented. You got rappers that admit that they didn't know what they were writing because they were so fucked up on drugs that they were mumbling shit that uh, 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 whenever they would rap that the crowd would have their own lyrics to their mumbles because they themselves didn't know what they were saying, you know, and they're mumbling many times intentionally on purpose. You know, so, you know, that's just me, man. I could keep going on, but you know what? Sometimes the truth hurts people, and uh, I know I probably ruffled somebody's feathers already. So, okay. to be honest with you, I don't give a shit. You'd rather, you'd rather be honest than be fake honest, you know? That's just how it is these days, you know? Like like, like I said, the millennials, they don't like honesty. Right. They just don't like it, but you're going to get your feelings hurt, but it is what it is. But maybe later on, when they get older, they're going to realize, it. yeah, now it's making sense. Right. Right. You know, well, we're going to end on that. Are there any plugs you want to do? Uh, you know what? If anybody wants to follow me, anybody wants to ask me any questions, anybody wants to get at me, anybody wants any more info for the documentary, up and coming, maybe shows or uh, uh, whatever I may be doing in the future, you can reach me at, on Instagram. That's probably the best way. And that's uh, Tony A. The Wizard uh, on Instagram, Tony A. The Wizard. And uh, the is spelled with a D A. So Tony A. The Wizard. From there, if you were to go to my bio, you could click onto my website, and from my website, you can go onto my Facebook, my YouTube page, uh, whatever. I, I also have Rodeo Mixtape Apparel that you can buy. I don't have any cheap shit. All my shit is good quality stuff, man. That's why I charge what I charge, because it's good quality stuff. Everything's on Pro Club. Everything's digital print. Uh, but you can reach me on, like I said, once again, uh, Tony the Wizard on Instagram, and uh, I usually try to answer everybody in a timely manner, um, and uh, that's pretty much it, man. Like I said, be looking out for everything that I'm going to be uh, releasing because I don't release no whack shit. The reason why I take my, my sweet time is because I gotta make sure that it's gonna be a hit, not a miss. I know, so. I, I love it. And you can follow me on Instagram at Mega Man 6980 
uh, rate and review, subscribe to the Mega Man Podcast. You can find it on iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Radio Public, Stitchers, and Anchor. And I'm kind of working on SoundCloud. Don't worry, Alex DeLarge. Your money, <laughs> the sponsor money, you're going to get your money worth. And uh, Tony... Thank, uh, thank you for, oh, thank you, for having me, man. Your humble house, place and everything. Thank you, brother. I'm, I appreciate it, man. Uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, as soon as the documentary drops, we'll do another one. I, I Part two. We got, if you, when you have your documentary, we'll push it out as much as I can. Uh, like I said, I'm going to do whatever I can to push out this podcast episode because I want people to understand and get to know you. Most definitely. Thank you, man. All right. All right, everything's out after this. I'm going to take my garage to go get uh, some beers at uh, Mariko Red Rest Pizza one more time. All right, Mega Man is out. Late.